I'm just pulling up now. Well, let's start out with the fact that as good as Russell Wilson is, this is actually the second time that a team has let go of him. I'll take a scalpel to John Gruden's apology. We'll talk some Tyson. And then in comes Mike Sando of The Athletic for a conversation about what lies ahead for Seattle and for Russ. Does that sound good? I no longer marvel at the magnitude of Tom O'Brien's stupidity. That's because I have a better understanding of how complicated things can get with Russell Wilson. You might not remember O'Brien. He was Wilson's coach at North Carolina State. He's the guy that decided since Russell Wilson would not give up baseball in 2011, that Russell Wilson would not be coming back for his final season of college eligibility at North Carolina State. Yeah, that was dumb. I've thought about O'Brien more than a couple of times in the six months since Seattle traded Wilson. Not because I think O'Brien was right. He was not. Not because I think O'Brien's decision was fair. I don't think it was. I've thought about O'Brien because he ultimately decided it was impossible to coexist with Wilson's ambition. And when you think about it, that's kind of what the Seahawks concluded earlier this year, too. At North Carolina State, it was about Wilson continuing to play baseball. O'Brien didn't just ask Wilson not to play baseball. He said Wilson would not continue to be North Carolina State's starting quarterback, ultimately wouldn't even be on the football team if he continued to play baseball. Wilson was not willing to defer to his football coach when it came to his career. He reported for that minor league season in the Rockies organization with the Asheville Tourists, and he never played football for North Carolina State again. He had to transfer to Wisconsin, where he nearly won the Heisman Trophy and played in the Rose Bowl. In Seattle... It was Wilson who sought change. The team was no longer as dominant as it had been his first five seasons in the league, yet neither the coach nor the front office was inclined to give Wilson more control over the offense or a larger say in personnel. Wilson was not going to defer to the franchise when it came to his legacy. He asked for a trade. Now, there are plenty of people who felt the Seahawks should have done whatever it took to appease Wilson because, well, that's just what you do when you have a quarterback as good as Wilson. Here's Colin Cowherd on Fox Sports 1 last month. But I have been really, really hard on the Seahawks for a couple of years because I don't think they understand the value, Belichick's finding out about it now, the value of Russell Wilson. Figure out a way to get along with a star quarterback. If he's needy, not saying Russ is, but if he's needy, like Aaron Rodgers can be, deal with it. Just got to get along with Aaron Rodgers. He drives me nuts. You got to get along with him. You got to get along with Russell Wilson. You got to get along with Brady. 
it has been a while since an NFL team agreed to trade a quarterback who's as good as Russell Wilson, but it's actually the second time in 11 years that a team has decided to let Wilson himself go. Now we'll wait to see if Wilson makes the Seahawks look as bad as O'Brien did after he forced Wilson out at North Carolina State. O'Brien, it should be noted, was fired the following season. Mike Sando of The Athletic is going to join me here at the Dang Apostrophe a little bit later on. We're going to talk about what to expect from Wilson on Monday night in Seattle, this season, and the rest of his career. Topic 2, The Bad. Apologies are not that hard. Maybe I just feel that way because I tend to apologize. A lot. Not just because I screw up, but it tends to be my default if someone feels uncomfortable. I'm sorry, did I do something? In fact, I'm so well-versed on everything from the mechanics of a good apology to its execution that there might be a business possibility here, especially when you consider how poorly some very prominent people are when it comes to apologizing. Take John Gruden, for instance. You remember him, right? Former NFL head coach, then Monday Night Football announcer, then NFL head coach again. He's currently in bad man purgatory after some of his emails were published last year. And man, he wasn't even subtle about his racism, his sexism, his blatant homophobia when it came to Michael Sam's NFL career. Gruden lost his job. He's now suing the NFL and has pretty much disappeared from public view. But he popped back up last week speaking at something called the Little Rock Touchdown Club where he was asked if there was anything he wanted to say about the way he has been characterized. I'm ashamed about uh, what has uh, come about in these emails, and I'll make no uh, excuses for it. It's just, it's, it's shameful. But uh, I am a good person. I believe that. I, I'm, I, I go to church. I've been married for 31 years. i got three great boys. I still love football. I've made some mistakes, but I don't think anybody else in here hasn't. Uh, And I just ask for forgiveness, and hopefully I get another shot. Terrible apology. Just awful. D-average at best. And the only reason it's not an F is because he didn't do anything to make himself look worse than he already did. First, it was about him. He was embarrassed. He was ashamed. He didn't explain why, though. And he didn't apologize to the people he harmed. And really, that's the whole point of an apology. And maybe Gruden's not actually sorry. Maybe he just regrets being exposed. But it's also possible that Gruden doesn't know how to effectively apologize. And I'm going to err on the side that he's clueless as opposed to unrepentant and explain the four elements to a good apology. Step one. State what you are apologizing for. Sounds simple, right? Straightforward. It's remarkable the number of apologies in which the person fails to specify what it is that they are actually sorry for. Step two, acknowledge the harm your actions caused. This is not about your embarrassment or the disappointment of people you know or letting your team down. It's about the people who were hurt by what you did. Step three, You may clarify your intentions if they were different from the motives that have been ascribed to you. However, be careful. Make this very brief. Also, make it clear that this does not excuse your actions. And what matters most is not what you intended to happen, 
but what actually happened to the people who were harmed. Step four, repeat your apology. When you do this, you need to understand that it's up to others whether you're going to be forgiven. Getting up there and saying sorry doesn't pick up the Etch-A-Sketch, shake it, and erase everything. It's up to them when you get forgiven. Notice there is no space in a good apology for the word but. If that comes out of your mouth, you need to think long and hard about what just happened. Similarly, there should be no mention of the fact that everyone makes mistakes. Do not state that you're apologizing to those who were offended either because that's not actually an apology. These are all ways to justify your actions or to minimize their harm, which at the very least is going to make your apology less effective and often serves to make it very clear that you are not actually sorry. Now, it's possible that explaining how to apologize well is a terrible idea in that people who are not sorry will now have a blueprint for making it seem like they are. But I am so sick and tired of these famous people standing up and wrinkling their foreheads like they're the ones in pain while talking about how badly they feel about what has happened that I could absolutely scream. Wait, I'm sorry. I got carried away there. Topic three, the ugly. find Mike Tyson to be absolutely fascinating. This is partly due to my age. See, I grew up in the 1980s when he became the youngest heavyweight champion of the world, and this was the time when that actually meant something. He was famous enough to be the final boss in a popular Nintendo game, and as an opponent, he was so strong, he'd knock you down with a single punch. The key? He'd flash just before he threw that punch. I can remember my eyes watering because I had them open so long, afraid if I blinked, I'd miss the cue. There's a bit of a Tyson renaissance going on. It started with his cameo in The Hangover, and it's kind of progressed from there. There's an eight-part miniseries on his life. It began airing last month on the streaming service Hulu, though Mike objected to it because someone else is making money off his story. I also saw there's a $50 coffee table book being published with photos that document Tyson's rise from a juvenile delinquent training under custom auto to the youngest heavyweight champ in history. But these projects, like so much of the coverage of Tyson, really say more about who we want Tyson to be, what we want him to mean, than who he actually is. And that's really always kind of been the case with this guy. And right now he's being sold as this reformed and mellowed man who's went through way more than we ever knew back when he became famous and then infamous. And I'm sure there's some truth to that. But... I also think that any attempt to document or discuss Tyson's history necessitates a conversation about a very dark part of his life as it regards to his treatment of women, violence, abuse, serial infidelity, rape. Tyson's story is much more complicated and much more ugly than a boxer who became very famous very fast and ultimately went kind of nuts and bit an opponent's ear in the ring. Tyson admitted to having hit his first wife, the actress Robin Givens. And he was convicted of rape, though he has always argued that was a consensual encounter. But his denials are problematic in their own right. I read through his autobiography, which was published in 2013, Mike Tyson, The Undisputed Truth. And it starts, like the very intro is Tyson talking about 
all of the women he slept with in the days and weeks before he went to jail. He said he went and visited all his girlfriends, and he cited the fact that these women believed in his innocence of the charges of rape as proof that he didn't need to rape anyone. It's those that reality of what he was accused of, the fact that he was convicted, how he talks about his innocence, like all of these... There's 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 a there's a difficult conversation about the way he treated women and has been said to have treated women. The Hulu series really doesn't deal with any of this. It treats the allegations of domestic violence regarding Givens as kind of this he said, she said matter and there's not any definitive truth. But it's more than that. The fact is that Tyson is actually more interesting on his own terms than any attempt by someone else to tell his story. And and I realized that as I was watching the Hulu series. Back in the 1980s, when Tyson became famous, the audience didn't have direct access to him. He kind of, his story was told through others. And that's not true anymore. The media environment is totally different. Someone like Tyson or any athlete for that matter, whether it's social media, their own podcast, like they have access to their audience. And Tyson has, he's the subject of a, it was a one man stage show that was filmed and became a documentary, Becoming Mike Tyson. He's got a podcast now. It's Hot Boxing with Mike Tyson in which he smokes weed and talks to people. And, and there have been times when he has been incredibly compassionate. He was talking to a rapper about, and basically telling the guy, why he shouldn't be using homophobic slurs. It was really powerful. And Tyson is unreliable as a narrator. I'm not going to sit there and say like, hey, if you want the real truth, go listen to Tyson because he's, look, he's he's confusing and he's conflicted and there are all these different things. It's never super straightforward. But it is more interesting. And at times, he's way more willing to engage in honest self-criticism than the people who tell his story, than something like this Kulu series. This is a clip from a podcast episode he recorded with Shannon Briggs. Briggs is a former heavyweight fighter, too. And the, the episode was recorded in June 2020. I want to warn you, the language is very crass. And it's, yeah, it'll be, I cringed listening to it. But him talking here about sort of his understanding of how his pursuit of sexual pleasure has kind of undermined his life or led him to do things that were not in his best interest is really compelling. My dick was my conscience. For a I'm time. Always, I'm always conscious about, um, now that I'm living what I believe is a, the, the proper life, I'm always conscious of my actions with women. What do you do? It's, you know, I know what not to do. Mm. That's you do the contrary I'm thing. Just, I, it's my experience in life. I'm 53 years old. I you know I do. You know I did that before. I was at this situation before where I could say, "Hey, I'm going this way," but I went that way. I know it's gonna happen. I never tried doing this way before, so I'm trying this way now. I know it's gonna happen another day. I might fall in love with this woman and say, "Fuck my family." Can you imagine that? I'm so dick conscious, I'm like, my dick tells me I'm in love, this is great pussy, don't leave this pussy. Not my mind, not my heart, my dick tells me that. And I listen to a fucking idiot without a brain. 
He just wants pleasure. He don't even want pleasure. He don't care if he catches the disease or anything. It has to be done. It has to be done. I have to get that nut. I don't care if I'm catching AIDS. I don't care what it is. I get that, that, that nut. So it's more crass, but I would say it's also probably more interesting and more revealing about who Tyson is compared to any of the attempts that other people have to tell his story. Topic four, diving deep. I am very excited to welcome on to the podcast, The Dang Apostrophe, which I'm describing as a micromedia project. Someone who I first became acclimated to and acquainted with in mass media, Mike Sando of The Athletic, formerly of ESPN.com, and then I knew him when he was covering the Seattle Seahawks. He was the he was the dean beat writer for the Seattle Seahawks at the Tacoma News Tribune when I first started the Seattle Post Intelligencer. Mike, I'm really grateful for you taking the time. Oh, it's so good to be here, Danny. When was that? What was the first year? I've started two thousand five was the first year because I believe you started, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think you started right about the time Holmgren got there, like 1999. Am I right yeah. about that? One year before I started uh, Dennis's last year, Dennis Erickson's last year. So this is my 25th year of covering the NFL. And amazingly, I had a, I had a career before that covering colleges and high schools and all of that. So I guess that means we're a little bit older, but um, it's great. I, I love doing this from the advantage of having all of that time and, and sort of time on task and you grow and... and uh, you know, we probably would look back to what we were doing then and be, you know, somewhat embarrassed. But I think that's a good sign, right? You know, I think so. I, I will say you were the first person I, I described. I'm someone who remembers journalism before the Internet. And, th- and that doesn't that doesn't make us old. And you, and you do, too. But you were one of the first people that utilized the Internet sort of in in ways that that came to predict how the rest of the industry adjusted. Um, you used it was a yeah. blog, but even calling it a blog is not. You started covering the Seahawks in real time, and it started that first year. I was I I started covering the Seahawks in two thousand five. I I think you guys at the Tacoma News Tribune had done sort of a draft coverage where you were pretty aggressive. That's true. That year online, and then you carried that forward where you were posting audio from the press conferences, something that had typically been sorted through over the course of the next 24 hours, and you were posting the raw audio of it. And that is now every team live streams their press conferences. <laughs> it, it's, it's interesting to think how much things have changed. And that's, that's really in a little more than 15 years, like less than 20 years, that's really changed the way the beats are covered. Well, when I went on to the Seahawks beat in 98, I'd come from covering the uh, uh, Washington State Cougars for the spokesman interview in Spokane. And at that time, the job was, uh, you know, I'd cover baseball and track season. I covered the, the college, the university. But um, starting in after track season, you know, even late May, kind of into that time, I would just disappear for all of June, all of July. It was all comp time because you're, you're burning it seven days a week the rest of the time. And then I wouldn't show up again until training camp. The paper didn't know if I was in Europe, which I wasn't. I should have been. But you know what I mean? They didn't know if I was playing golf, if I was working on my craft, uh, if I was working on a couple of craft beers. No idea. It was just a totally different world. And there wasn't that immediacy of, we can do it. Well, you fast forward. Mark Briggs was the um, head of the kind of the interactive or the online arm of the 
the News Tribune going into the 2005 draft, and he said, Mike, do you want to do a blog during the draft, like a live blog? And we didn't even hardly announce it. You know, we just, I just showed up and did it. And the traffic on it was like, blew them away. You know, it was like, wow, there's a lot of interest. Do you want to do this all the time? And I said, sure. And it was simultaneously the best and worst thing I ever did because uh, it was the best thing because you know, we all, like, I think what we all get out of this, a lot of a lot of what we get out of this is we like to learn something and tell other people. And to have that direct connection with the people reading us, um, you know, there's negatives to it. You, you deal with some, you know, rude people or that sort of thing. But it's, mostly it's really cool. And now we experience that all the time, maybe even too much with all arms of social media. But to me, I love that connection. People could leave comments. I could respond to them. I was at that time, charting personnel groups, you know, doing things that, you know, now you can find out through PFF or whoever, uh, how many plays they were doing this or what their efficiency was out of that. I was doing that then and posting it and it really took off, um, which led me to go to ESPN and should I did the NFC West for, for, um, five years. And really, I think for a while there, and some of this continues, it really became a race to do as much as you can around the clock. You know, it almost became an unsustainable type of thing uh, to cover. I can remember on that blog, uh, you know, on June 5th, let's say of a year, posting, hey, I'm going to be away for a few hours. You know, like I felt guilty about leaving the thing. It just consumed me, you know. Um, and that was probably my, my own fault. But it was the start of something that... Uh, you know, I think Mike Reese was doing that. He's now at ESPN. Mm -hmm. He and I were kind of, it was funny, we joke because we won some awards for our blogs in like 2005, 2006, but there was like five people doing it. I'm not saying our blogs weren't good. I think they were pretty good, but uh, we were like the first guys that were really treating it as a beat, you know, and really not just as a uh, uh, an extension of our coverage in the paper. The coverage in the paper kind of became an annoyance because mm -hmm. we wanted to do it all now. And we had such freedom, Danny. That I remember standing in the parking lot with Brock Heward. He was recently retired, you know, a, few, a couple of years out. And I'd record a podcast. We'd talk to Brock for 20 minutes in the parking lot, holding a microphone up to his face. And I'd go post it on the thing, totally unedited. We didn't even produce it, you know. But uh, I loved it. It, w it was really fun. And it was, and it was right on that kind of that wave of where we are today. Yeah, it was, it was really remarkable. And as someone who was... People will say competing. I, I've never, I've, I've thought of the reporters uh, that I work around as colleagues <laughs> as much as competitors. Like it was, yeah. it was, it we was had a fascinating. Deal. Yeah, yeah. There's, it's but it's. I was fascinated. I, I thought it was awesome what you did, and and I think it's. I've, I've always enjoyed your work and your perspective, and yeah. now you've kind of pivoted to more of a league wide role and used sort of the expertise. And, and the sources, but also just understanding yeah. the, the industry of pro football. Um, one of the yeah. things I, I, it's one of my favorite things that's done in the media anywhere, any time of the year is your quarterback tiers. Like I, I, yeah. I think it's fascinating. I think it's the right way to categorize quarterbacks, uh -huh. not rank them one through 32 or one through 50 or whatever any, anybody do, because the difference between one and three is, is fairly immaterial. The team that has the best quarterback isn't going to get rid of him. And the team that has the third best quarterback isn't going to like tears make sense. Um, when, yeah. when did you, when did you come up with that idea for tears? Well, I, the first year we did quarterback tiers was 2014, and it kind of just evolved from, you know, I think a couple of years before that or sometime right around there, maybe the year or two before I had become a quote unquote national guy for the first time. And, mm -hmm. 
you know, um, for me, that got me, I, I started, I knew a lot of people in the league, but I didn't really talk to them about, um, about the game. You know, you're, you're covering something, your, your needs for coverage are so immediate that you are writing a higher percentage of what you know, and you're writing it tomorrow because you've got to write all the time. And as I transitioned into more of a, a you know, a periodic writing, um, it gave me the, appeal, the ability to build relationships and have conversations with people that I didn't have to use the conversations all the time. I could learn about the game. So I started to really learn. I've always had a, I've always had a high annoyance with the reporter who doesn't know what they don't know and thinks they know it. That cringe moment in the press conference when the reporter invariably says, hey, coach, in the second half there, you guys went to a little bit of a cover three there with a, uh, the guy was buzzing over here. What, what was the thought behind And all it is is a mechanism for that guy who doesn't know anything to try to act like he knows what's going on. And I think there's a – I always went into it like, hey, what were you guys doing in the second half? Hey, how are the games won? Mm-hmm. Like, if you approach this job from the assumption, which is accurate, that you don't know what you're talking about, mm-hmm. for the most part, that you couldn't go in to a building and give a talk about the game and impress people, right? As, especially as a starting out reporter. When you start from, from that point of acknowledgement, you can learn so much. It doesn't mean that everyone in the league is right. Shoot, they mess up all the time on stuff. But I have turned my, this job into a continuing conversation with people in the league. And as, as I've gotten the knowledge over the years, it's really helped me to have those conversations and to, and to actually have conversations that people in the league are having, not just because they have to, because I'm in the media, but because we want to have these conversations. And so quarterback tears probably grew out of that, right? Like, what's the best way to view these quarterbacks? The component of... Stripping away the components that make it easy for the quarterback to win. Great defense, uh, great running game, um, play action, all of those things. We can make Kirk Cousins' stats look like Tom Brady's stats. We can do Mm -hmm. that. But we know they're not the same. So how do we figure that out? And I think the tears were kind of born out of that, that reality of, hey, look, don't say Joe Flacco's elite or this guy's elite. Let's 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 talk to people who really know, right? Um, and have real conversations with them. And so I think the tears grew out of that. The first year I did it, it was fairly under, you know it was a little bit more loosely defined. I think I've sharpened those definitions as I've learned more and bounced it off of people in the league. Hey, what do you think? Would you change this? You know that sort of thing. So long-winded answer, but I think that gives you a feel. Well, we're going we're gonna to focus on Russell Wilson here. So the, the operative difference here is tier one and tier two. And tier one, and I want you to correct me. Um, you need to correct yeah. me. If my Tier one is the quarterback for whom he's going to make your team matter, kind of no matter what he has around him. Is, is that a fair way to characterize yeah. Yeah, and, tier one? And, and, I, and I think he more expertly handles the pure passing situations. Like when everyone knows you have to pass, can this guy handle just a pure drop back pass game? That's a component of it that gets confusing for some people, but there's still a belief, and I think it's right in the league, that in general the game gets reduced to that at critical moments and when you're trying to go through the playoffs. And if you have that guy who can drop back and and do that when no one's expecting the run and that sort of a thing, uh, you're going to be ahead. I sort of view the top two tiers, at Danny, as we're not trying to replace our guy. 
Mm-hmm. Like yeah. we're going to enter into a long-term deal. Uh, now, I, and I feel like in tier two, which Russell fell into tier two this year, but there's some good quarterbacks in there. I think in tier two, you feel like, you know what? We, we can win it all. Like we don't have to have the Ravens amazing defense that they won the Super Bowl with 15 or 20 years ago to, to get into that. We don't, you know what I mean? We, we, yeah. we feel like our guy can be a contributing factor to why we win. I think when you get into tier three, which, you know, Kirk Cousins is always at the top of that. I think you could, you still could win a championship, but you really got to have everything right, catch lightning in a bottle, and then um, you still may have one eye on on getting someone else. And, and like Jimmy Garoppolo is a good example. Like Jimmy Garoppolo is a good quarterback. They can even mm-hmm. go to the Super Bowl when they're really good around him. Great offensive schemer, great defense. Um, you know, he's good. He's a good quarterback. You can be a lot worse. You, uh, but you while you have him, you're kind of like, shoot, should we get Trey Lance? You know, yeah. You, you're you're sort of making that dilemma, like the the. The Vikings are like, yeah, Cousins, shoot, we're kind of stuck on this contract. But, man, if we, if we could get a guy, you know, we would move on from him. And I think that's, your, that's where the cutoff is. Yeah, I, th- I think that's, that's, that's a great way of putting it. Kind of the tier one is, man, if we get in a situation where we need some scores late and he needs to throw, he can do it. Like, we're, we're confident in him beating. Tier two is, like, we, we really like our quarterback, but we, we build yep. consciously kind of around him to accentuate his strengths and, and, and minimize some weaknesses that, that are there. And tier three is, like, we can win with yep. him, but, man, everything else has got to be great. Everything, yeah. everything else has to, has to be exactly correct. And I think tier two can also kind of have, you can have that rotating into tier one year. You know, Matt Ryan can, if, when he gets with Kyle Shanahan and has a good line, he can be the MVP of the league. Right, and I mm-hmm. felt like so. If we look this year, the top of tier two is Stafford, Russell Wilson, Deshaun Watson. I think might might be a bottom tier one. He just missed time, and no one knows what's going to happen. Lamar Jackson, Dak Prescott, Derek Carr, Kyler Murray. We'll see Matt Ryan, but that that group, like you could see any of those guys being the MVP in a given year, right? Y- yes, but. You could see Aaron Rodgers being the MVP every year. <laughs> right. right, yeah. And that's that. they're all franchise quarterbacks. Tier one, tier two are all what yeah. we would conventionally term franchise quarterbacks. And it's a little bit, you, you mentioned Russ, Russ, did, Russ yeah. slid into tier two. And I don't know if that's the right, slid is probably the wrong, the wrong verb there. But he's seen, where, how is Russ seen now around, around the league? Yeah, so I'm going to go reverse order on this. So early on, he was seen as the good game manager, but didn't have to do as much because they were so great on defense and everyone was had their eyes on Marshawn Lynch, uh, but really good in that context. And then I think as that fell off around him and they still were a playoff team, uh, granted they weren't advancing much, but they were still a playoff team winning a bunch of games, I think people saw him more as, okay, he showed that he could do it, you know, and he ascended into Tier 1. But I think in the back of people's minds, they always felt like, he was a different type of tier one. Like he doesn't, you know, there are some limitations with the size and being able to see. And then there's, is a little bit of a reliance on his ability to move and make the spectacular playoff schedule. And mm-hmm. so now that he gets a little bit older in his career, you know, I think he's put on some weight probably for strategic reasons uh, to hold up. He has seemed at times to be less eager to run around. He seemed a little bit less elusive, although we've seen flashes. You know, I think I'm anxious to see. I don't think anyone thinks he's done. But I think if I had to bet, have we seen the best of Russell Wilson? I might probably bet yes, because he was really productive and really good. I mean, his 
his peak, he was 50 tier one votes out of 50 voters in the league. Yeah. Coaches and executives. So I don't feel like he's been that for a year and a half for whatever reason. And I feel like to, to be there, I feel like he needs more right around him than some of those guys in tier one. So I think top of tier two is pretty good. And then we're watching this year to say, okay, you know, is he going to bounce back a little or is this what he is? Yeah, it's such a fascinating thing because that the year and a half, it kind of coincides with Pete also deciding midway through that that 2020 season where there there weren't the fans of kind of like we're gonna there was there was a change there where he's like we're we're gonna throw less we're throwing too much we're relying too much on the on the deep ball and I think there's some people that believe like hey he overreacted the coach overreacted to a, a, yeah. a stretch of rough games. But on the other side, I look at it and I was like, well, after they made that decision, like things corrected and they ended up winning the division. Like that, the the, the strategic thing was there. And that might've been the right decision that too much was relying yeah. on Russ at that point. And it was all going to cave in. And in some ways, I think we're going to get a little bit of an answer because I expect Denver and to, to play more like Seattle that first half of 2020. I think that part's uh, really interesting because... You know, I think the the narrative got out there that hey, Seattle is limiting Russell Wilson by playing mm-hmm. this certain way, and that wasn't just the run pass thing, but just in general the way they played. But there was also truth to Seattle was playing that way because they thought that fit Russell Wilson best because they don't think he's Peyton Manning. Mm-hmm. And guess what? The league doesn't think he's Peyton Manning either, and there's no shame in that. But Russ yeah. thinks he's Peyton Manning, or wants to be that. He does, yes. Russell has this amazing mindset that serves him so well, but he, to be as great as he's been, he has to have that, why not me? I, I am unlimited. The, the potential is unlimited. But the potential is limited. I mean, there's only a couple of guys that are really like that, and even they need help. You know, if you look at Aaron Rodgers with Green Bay, he's less of the all-out uh offense throwing it all around they have a big running game now he can still do everything but they've made it easier for him he's not getting hurt anymore he's not running around he's not out of control almost making spectacular plays all the time he can still do it when he wants to but he's in a regulated offense so what's nathaniel hackett gonna do and nathaniel hackett the coach of denver is a first-time head coach and they have completely empowered russell wilson i mean russell wilson is running the place Mm -hmm. so what if the offense looks a lot like it looked in Seattle, but it's just Russell's idea now? Yeah. What if they were running the? What if they were already running Russell's offense? There's a yeah. lot of people who've been around Seattle who think that. So and in the league, so I'm fascinated by it. You know, I'm sure they're going to be better, and I think Seattle's going to be worse. You know, for sure in the short term. There's no doubt Russell Wilson's a good quarterback. He's better than what Denver's had, and he's better than what Seattle's going to have until they get something else. Now. Let's switch to Seattle there because Seattle is going to be worse. Like there's there's no way to look at this. And and I don't think that means that they made a wrong decision even. I, I think they had a complicated set of variables with a quarterback who was unhappy, who had indicated to them that yep. he wasn't going to sign again. And they made a decision that we're going to get the most for him if we do it now, as opposed to the risks of trying to manage this for another year. Yeah, for Seattle this year, what's what would be a good sign for Seattle over the course of this season? Like, what would you consider? Like, hey, this yeah. is this is a team that's on the right track now. They've captured the recaptured the formula for young guys playing and developing, and that obviously 
shoot, there's been great signs that they've got two offensive tackles now that look like, not just me saying it, but guys that we respect who know offensive line play, Dave Bowling, Ray Roberts. I mean, these guys are all in chorus of like, they got themselves two tackles. Well, that's a huge start. Um, And then I think defensively, uh, you know, it was painful to move on from Bobby Wagner and some of that, but it kind of needed, the page needed to be turned. The bandit needs to be ripped off, right? You can't just, you're either doing this or you're not with the young guys. And so I'm interested in seeing uh, if now there's more, I think there is more of an eagerness by Pete Carroll and the coaching staff to lean into the young guys. I thought that was a real strength early on in their tenure there. And they kind of got away from it. And people were like, oh, their drafts are terrible, this or that. But they were playing older guys, too. And sometimes you do that when you have Russell Wilson and Bobby Wagner, right? You almost Mm -hmm. owe it to them. You plug in with some veteran guys. But there are some signs that that some of their younger guys, you know, look good again. So I think that I I would want to see two things from them. One, I kind of believe that the great coach rarely has a terrible year. Even Pete in his first couple years was 7-9. and I think he's a great coach. Um, so I want to see that. Like, he has to save them from being really bad. And then want to see the young young guys play. Now, it's a huge bonus cherry on top to me if Drew Locke looks good at some point during the year. You know, I'm not one of the Locke believers. Uh, I certainly understand what they're talking about because he does have really good talent. But he just seems like the type of guy at the worst time who just totally ruins the game. You know, and he has to prove his way out of that and wasn't able to in preseason. Uh, if they were to get... A quarterback answer out of this season, to me, that's winning the lottery. Because I, I think they bought a lottery ticket in Drew Locke. I don't think he's a investment. You know what I mean? I don't think he's a blue-chip yeah. stock. I think he's a little bit of a lottery ticket. And it, you know, you, I don't mean like it's Powerball odds, you know? But, but you're, you know, they're trying to win a few hundred bucks on a lottery ticket. And that's hard to do. Yeah, it is. He does do the one thing that Pete Carroll hates more than anything else, which is kind of the jump ball. Like the the forget yeah. it throw where hey it's second and eighteen and I'm just going to chuck it deep and you saw it a little bit in yep. the, in the preseason game Pete Pete really hates that like it's if there's yeah. one like like we don't need to do that like he he hates yeah. the quarterback who just decides I got to make something happen they have to have they absolutely have to be much better on defense and special teams um, to win with their current quarterback situation. That was a huge driver of them going seven and nine twice early on. They got young guys, they drafted them, they put them out there and they were, they were pretty good. Not right away, but you know, and they had a little veteran seasoning, a lawyer Malloy here or there, but they, they won those, they went seven and nine twice because they really had something going early that became one of the greatest defenses in NFL history. And they haven't had that. They, they've been up and down, some good, mostly kind of mediocre. And if they're that, if their defense is basically what it's been the last two years, um, they're going to win four games this year. They're going to win four or five games. If it really takes that jump um, and they get it going on that side, then I think they can be the 7-9. and nine. Maybe it's 7-10 and 10 now you know, in the new 17-game schedule. But... Um, I don't necessarily see them flipping that. You know, I don't see their path to flipping that. I just don't think Geno Smith is going to do it, and the odds are against Drew Locke doing it. Yeah, it's if if they if they are like that seven and ten team, and you feel good about the defense, this will feel a lot like 2011, where they go into the offseason and everybody knows, okay, now they need to find an, an answer at quarterback. Um, they they need to find somebody that they believe will will fit into that and can grow into that that position down the road, and and I think you're right. Like if it is if it is less than that, if this is a four or five win team, then you're going to wonder, okay, it, 
it, it, it seems like it's a more complete rebuild than, than the Seahawks it's, thought yeah. it was. Yeah, and it's so hard to find that guy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so hard. Because even if you find a middling guy, a veteran or something, you're going to pay him like he's good. Yeah. And then that's going to affect the rest of your roster, right? Like what you can do. You can get into the Kirk Cousins syndrome, right? And it's just such an unprecedented thing to do. To have somebody who is perceived as good. Russell Wilson, even though he's declined some, is still perceived as a top 10 quarterback yes. in the league. He's not, uh, he doesn't have off the field problems. He hasn't, you know, he had the finger injury, but he doesn't have chronic injuries. I mean, a finger injury, that could happen to anybody. You know, you miss a few games. It happened to Drew Brees a few years ago. Anyone could have that happen. He's never missed a game before that. There wasn't, other than the relationship with the team and whatever they were perceiving about his attitude, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't something that they absolutely had to do this, you know. So it's it's kind of it's kind of an invigorating thing. Like as somebody covering the team, I was tired as anybody was about the narrative. Russ this, Pete that. You know, I think they're both good. Mm-hmm. I got really tired of the Pete's an out of date, terrible coach. No, he's not. Pete Carroll believes the same things Kyle Shanahan believes about winning the games. We don't want to have turnovers. We want to have a good running game. We want to play good defense. We need a quarterback who's good. Yep. You know, explosive Pete, plays. Like I don't want to dink and dunk. Plays, like when we yeah. throw the ball, I want I want it going down yeah. the field. But one of the really interesting things, one of the frustrations with Russell Wilson was that he, when they did put in the Shane Waldron offense, he wasn't finding the the shorter and intermediate routes. He wasn't hitting on those. And I think, mm-hmm. um, as you know, wh- he was kind of a boom and bust quarterback a lot. But the booms were so good and so frequent that it was like worth it. It felt like, for whatever reason, the last year and a half, that the booms were less frequent and there were still lows. Mm -hmm. So now they're not going to have the booms. They're not having Russell Wilson booms with the guys they have now. Is there, can they do enough of just taking what the defense gives them to be representative and in games? I mean, it's not a very high ceiling. You know, they're going to have to be really good on defense special teams, better than they've been. That's Pete Carroll's challenge. Yeah, it's been a long time since we've seen a quarterback as good as him just change teams, let alone be traded. Um, Drew Brees. And not be old. Yeah, and not be old. Drew Brees does, but even then, Phillip Rivers is there, and he had a shoulder injury that he was coming off of. It, it did make me, and this will kind of be my last question, Mike, how much of Seattle's decision to trade him do you think was based on their their perception of his future performance? And what I mean by that is like, there's a, there's a tension over the direction of the offense and sort of Russell's importance in the franchise, for lack of a better word. Like we see in, yes. in Denver how he's positioned. And, and how much of it was, from a football perspective, Seattle looking at it and thinking that, okay, he's got two years left on his contract. It's gonna be difficult no matter what. We're not sure what he's going to be going forward. I think it's a pivotal part of it. I don't think it's 70% or 80%. I think the other thing was a huge part of it. But, I mean, without the other thing of all the all the dissatisfaction, I mean, I think mm-hmm. he's still there. Mm-hmm. Like, if he, like, if they felt good about the relationship, I don't think then that they're making the change at all. So I don't think the performance concern part is the driving force at all. However, I think it's a necessary component. It's a necessary part of the equation. Like, okay, we have this fractured relationship. We don't feel good about it. But if we think this guy is going to be so amazingly good anyway, we just find a way. Maybe they get rid of the coach, right? I mean, maybe you make a different set of decisions. I think they had to feel like, you know what? He's good, but 
there's probably a good chance that we've seen the best of them. And this is untenable enough that um, let's just, you know, let's just wipe the slate clean. And it is, it comes at an interesting time too, because, you know, there's an ownership change. There's some uncertainty about the long-term path of the franchise. You know, they'll, they'll sell the team at some point and may not be for years, but it was a little bit of a window there too, where, like the current people in power of John Schneider and Pete Carroll kind of made a interesting proposal, you know, uh, to mm-hmm. do. And, um, you know, would they, maybe Paul Allen would have been even more eager to do it. Maybe Paul Allen would have been like, I'm so tired of this Russell Wilson stuff. I want to do it. But maybe he also would have said, no guys, you signed him, make it work. You never know. Right. So yeah. I think that they're at an interesting time in the history of the franchise too. So yeah, it's going to be fun. Yeah, it is. I'm really interested to see how it turns out. M- Mike, I, I want to say thank you very much for, for joining me. Um, seriously, it's given up a lot of time and, and, and willingness to do this. I've, I've always enjoyed your work and working with you. And it was a f- really fun conversation for me, so I'm, I'm really grateful. It was great. Thanks, Daniel. Let's do it again. <laughs>